Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I think this season so far has had fewer sort of built-in halachic topics. This is actually a great one to have rabbis representing all the major streams of Judaism at, um, because when we were thinking about, actually, and this one was Rabbi Schatz's idea about for topics, you know, there's the scene where Amir is interviewing for the Sochnut, for the Jewish agency for, you know, to go um, to Venezuela, and they give him a number of hypothetical scenarios. Now, what's interesting being a small town rabbi is the ways in which the questions and situations that arise in the small town rabbinate are so utterly foreign to people who are in big places. Um, and just like these things don't arise. <laughs> um, and so it's sort of interesting seeing how Amir responds when there's questions about like, oh, this person who's getting intermarried and wants you to, uh, they're going to get married in the church and they want you to come to the wedding. Like, what would you do? Or like, oh, you're the rabbi and I forget the name of what city it is, but there's a, a tribe of Indians who wants to convert and they want to know what, you know, what you're going to say to the ministry of absorption and so forth, like these kinds of things, which are like, <laughs> to me, like sort of normal, not normal, but like things that would happen in New Orleans um, that would not necessarily happen in like Manhattan or Brooklyn um, or probably Los Angeles. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. I think. Yeah, I was just wondering why you didn't name the obvious city involved. I don't know if you're a small town or a big city. I've never been there. (laughs) (laughs) It's not true. I was there once for a wedding. You should just continue. Okay. Um, So. Are you one of those people that thinks there's no Jewish life west of the Mississippi? No, he's Um, just one of those people who doesn't want to ever come to Los Angeles. I've been there once. I was there for a wedding. Happened to be my sister's wedding. Um, that was the only time, though. So, no, I, I'm aware of the existence of Jewish life west of the Mississippi. I think, I, are we west of the Mississippi? Josh, just continue with the class. <laughs> anyway. Yes, you are west of the Mississippi. <laughs> Thank you. You're just digging a bigger hole. Just continue with the topic. Um, so we thought that could be an interesting conversation talking about the you know when Amir gets this question about you know a tribe of Indians who wants to uh convert and make Aliyah and so forth and like what would you tell them and he is like Indians um like is what he says just sort of looking at conversion and thinking like sort of rewinding history to the kind of origins of conversion and um and thinking about as it plays out differently in different denominations today, um, sort of what pieces of, of sort of original conversion, quote unquote, we hold on to and what we have dropped along the way. If that makes sense. Um, so a little bit earlier in, in the pre-episode class, we looked at a couple different um, Talmudic sugiot or uh, sections of the Talmud that, that discuss conversion. Um, and I mean, I think there's a, a few things that come up. One, one that's just sort of interesting historically is that often people would come as groups to convert. Um, and that was sort of more common. I'm like in touch regularly with a friend who, from 
in Ghana, where I was studied abroad, who's the head of the Jewish community there, and their whole community converted, all of them together. The Bahinah, the is is one group, and like that was just sort of like a thing that okay, we as a community want to convert. This comes up a lot in South America. You have like large groups of people who just kind of want to convert all together, and the conservative movement actually tends to be much nicer about that. Right, like the the community in Ghana converted through the conservative movement. Yeah, like, it was a hundred years ago. No, less than that. It was like thirty years ago. Um, there's another community in Uganda. Africa. Uganda, Uganda, Uganda did that. Ghana, but Uganda converted a hundred years ago. That's what I'm would, thinking of Uganda. I'm sorry. Yes, that's the Abu Ugaya. I was there right before the pandemic. Really. Uh, January of, no, no, not right before. It was January of 2019. And I did a lot of international travel in 2019. Little did I know that in 2020, I wouldn't be able to do any. But uh, I was at uh, the Jewish community in Uganda with uh, Gershom, Suzomu. Rabbi. Rabbi Suzomu. And his uh, community. And there was something to me jarring about davening the service I knew in a room full of black people. Hmm. And it was interesting in terms of my reaction. Um, you know, the, the secret races, but, um, I really valued the experience there. I just heard a Ted talk today about the importance of travel in creating an open mind. Mm-hmm. And Uganda was certainly eye opening in Every possible way. Yeah. It's, um, right. So the Abiyudaya community in Uganda goes back, like you said, about a hundred years and is sort of an established community. Um, but then there are others. So like, for example, I studied abroad in Ghana, which is in West Africa, not East Africa, like Uganda. But the rabbi of the community is this guy, Alex, who I talk to all the time. He went to Uganda to get training as a rabbi because there's sort of the big community over there in Uganda and, and his community in Ghana is much smaller. They actually, there's a documentary, I think it's on, it's either on Amazon prime or Netflix all about the Jewish community in Ghana. I forget. I think it's on prime. Anyway. And Alex is kind of featured in it. He's a, he's a great guy. Had he already converted when you were in Ghana? Had he, yeah, his father was the head of the community. His father was the one who sort of led the community down this pathway. The um, organization Kulanu, and you can look that up, sponsors and financially supports emerging Jewish communities in all sorts of unusual places. Yes. So, right. And, and, so Kulanu is sort of the the major organization that helps with this. And then it's interesting to think about the connection with the, you know, the question that's raised in this episode, because a lot of the same questions that anyone from any of these communities in Africa 
or South America are going to have in trying to go to Israel where they're not going to be recognized. Right. It's right. It's like the, it's sort of this challenge where you have people who on mass are accepting Judaism and for different reasons, like this, so I'll, I'll give the example of the community in Ghana. They, the, I think it was again, Alex's father who was sort of the leader of this community. And he said the community had always observed their Sabbath on Saturday and they had slaughtering practices, which were similar to Kashrut and they didn't do work on the Sabbath by punishment of death. And there was like all this stuff. And then they like got a Bible and were like, Oh, look, this is like the Old Testament is what we do. The New Testament is not what we do. Like we must be Old Testament people. Like we must be Israelites. And they didn't like know that Jews elsewhere in the world existed until they got radio and heard about this country, Israel, in like the 70s. And they're like, there's a country of Jews. What is this? You know, and so made their way to the embassy and like, you know, are sort of bound as it were. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like this interesting question about like who then recognizes such conversions as valid. And also the question, I think, of, of the suspicions with which such groups and conversions are seen. So like I know this came up a couple of years ago that there's a community, I think in Colombia, if I remember correctly, that sort of did a mass conversion, but they all wanted to make Aliyah. And the Israeli government was just like, no, I don't care who converted you. Like, no, you're just, you just want to come here because you want to leave Colombia and move to a better country and get automatic citizenship. And like, we're not taking you, you know? Um, and this became a whole thing, which I, I don't think they were ever allowed to come, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, where are my shots? Were you going to? No, I was just going to bring it back to the topic um, that from the actual, from the episode that, um, that one of the things that I found so interesting, both about this and the intermarriage piece in the interview, was that they were clearly looking for a specific kind of answer, right? So that... When I said to Rabbi Pernick, we should talk about this and don't tell anybody, but we don't actually disagree about that many things. Um, and when we do, when we do disagree, don't make that face. When we do disagree, it's not necessarily based on like a value system, but more so based on the denomination, um, that we are part of and how we therefore, in this case, convert students differently. Um, do you disagree with that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Not, anyway, yeah. Um, so I think that that there is something to be said for. I think there's something to be said for, and and you're right. It's lovely that your dad's here because then we also have the reform movement um, voice. It would be interesting for us to discuss what the process of conversion is for us, um, and if Amir had been a conservative. Uh, candidate that what his answer would have been if he had been a reform candidate what his answer would have been and actually I I think that he's probably even a little bit more traditional than the response that you would potentially give from the modern orthodox movement so specifically because he's in Israel and it's all very different as Rai Pernik was just saying um, in Israel and and in terms of movements in general Israel is is very different than America so is it okay if we take it in that direction? Sure. I'm asking you because you and I teach the class together. Is that okay yeah, with you? Yeah. 
Okay. Sure. Um, so do you want to go first? <laughs> do you want me to go well, Renee first? has her hand up. So let's oh, see Renee has her hand up. I just was wondering if Renee you could go give, first. If you can give me a quick synopsis of what the episode was about, because I didn't get to watch it, and I'm kind of confused just hearing this conversation. Oh, oh sure. Yeah, go ahead. You're good at synopsis. So the episode touched on a few different themes, but one, the theme that, or the, the storyline that we're touching on was that Right, Amir is trying to find a new job and he runs into an old friend who just got back from a three-year shlichut in Toronto through the Jewish agency. And he is like, you should do it, not necessarily to Toronto, but you should do like a shlichut with the Jewish agency. It's great and you get to live abroad and so forth, whatever. And so Amir, together with Ifat, apply an interview for a shlichut mission and it ends up that it would be to Venezuela. Um, and as part of the interview, they're sort of trying to see if you would be a good fit for like a, a mess, you know, a shaliach in such kinds of communities. And so they ask questions of like things that will come up, you know. So for example, you'll have someone, you know, so like the, the, the guy who's interviewing said, you know, pretends he's a woman and says, hi, I'm whatever my name is. And she reaches out his it's hand. It's a role play. A role play. There's a lot of role plays. And so he shakes his hand. And so he's like, oh, you would shake a woman's hand? And, you know, like there's all these kinds of things to see what would he sort of how would he be representing the Jewish agency and Israel more broadly um, in this role? So that's kind of where it so we were going to talk about shaking hands. But then I reminded my parent that we've done that already. Probably, and then yeah. then we decided that maybe we would talk about these pieces because part of the role plays that come up are then in terms of like the, the people who they might be around and the situations that they might come to Amir for as like the Jewish leader in that community. Does that make sense, Renee? Okay. So by the way, I'll just note one thing. So there's a, there's a popular halachic work, modern halachic work called Bemare Habazak. Um, and it's basically all true votes written in response to questions from people like, like on things like shlichut to Venezuela. Wow. And each question, it says where the question is coming from. You know, shaliach in Taipei or, you know, in Venezuela or so forth. And, and there will be questions that are then responded to. And there's like volumes of that are sort of arranged according to different sections of the Shulchan Aruch. But it's all like questions from out in the world. Um, and it's from like people in situations like this who are like Israelis who've gone to wherever far flung place. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this question. So that's so interesting. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Okay. Um, well, do you want to go first in terms of talking about, Oh, your dad unmuted. Maybe he just unmuted because I, I actually sent something to Rabbi Schatz, which I meant to include for the group, but I was saying that that was kind of like the response to literature, which every movement has, which is based on exactly that, you know, situations that come up in a community and the leaders really aren't sure exactly how to handle it. So they, would seek out a sage, whether it was the Rambam or, you know, maybe in the case of our different movements, we have a response to committee, you know, what, what do we do in the case of such and such? Right. I mean, and what's fun about Bimaria Bazak, I mean, it's all in Hebrew. I don't think they ever translated it, but it's sort of like so many questions and true vote are like kind of obscure in the weeds kinds of things that are being discussed, like in the Beit Nidrash, as it were, 
And what's nice with these is like, they're all real life questions from real life people out in the world. And so they touch on mm-hmm. things that are maybe also obscure, but like obscure in a more real way. <laughs> like, cause they're things that actually happen. Like, Masa Shahaya is, you know, it's a, like a thing that actually happened. So it does kind of make it more, more fun. Okay. Why don't you go first, talk about how you do conversions and then I'll go and then we'll have your dad go. <laughs> okay. Um, are you laughing? But I mean, I, well, I think the question, right. The, the challenge is that for every person, it's sort of the process is different. There's no sort of standardized universal, like this is what it looks like. Um, generally speaking, and we saw this when we looked at the Talmud a little bit earlier, there's sort of three components for a male of a conversion. And one is obviously absent for females that are, you know, it's Mila, Tevila, so circumcision, immersion, and Kabbalat, all mitzvot, an acceptance of the yoke of the commandments. So those are sort of the big three. Back in the day, it was also sacrifice, but we don't do that anymore. Um, so those are kind of the big three in terms of like the things that were, you know, a person needs to have done in order to become Jewish is immerse in a mikvah, circumcision if they're male, and um, acceptance of the yoke of the commandments. And can I just, can I just yeah. clarify? Yeah. Um, that circumcision does not mean if you are already circumcised, being circumcised again, because you can't do that. It means um, that's the what it means, mm-hmm. I was going to say that, I know. Okay, um, what it means. <laughs> I don't know what your movement believes in, you know. Josh, what it means is, <laughs> what it means is that if you are already circumcised, that you would have what's called hatafat dambrit. And that is that a, a tiny bit of blood just needs to be, um, not removed. What's the word? Well, they use like a little lancet. Um, but to show that there's a little bit of blood, Michael, you want to use, say, tell me what word? I just extracted. Extracted, sure. Um, from, from a circumcised penis, right? So that that, so that there's still, you know that the, that the man is circumcised, but there still is that element of blood of covenant that needs to be taken, um, to mean Mila, which is what Rai Pernick just mentioned. Okay, continue. I'll just note, by the way, that sometimes, Right, at least in the Orthodox world, if there's a child born to a um a Jewish father and a non Jewish mother, that when they do the circum you know, they might have a a uh a moil for the bris who would do a bris l'shem mila l'shem gior, sorry. Um, which basically is the it's sort of a different document that they write out, which essentially says like I am doing this circumcision for the sake of conversion. It doesn't mean that the child is now Jewish, but it means that if later on they were to go through the process of conversion, they wouldn't need a hatafatam because I'm doing this bris to sort of function as that one of the three. You know, we mentioned the three things you need. They haven't done the other two yet, but this this uh, circumcision would function in that way later on. It's often that's often done for children who are adopted into Jewish families um, because then they would be taken to mikvah not before eight days, but Typically, we'll take babies to the mikvah anywhere between 30 days and a year, and then if they're a little bit older. Um, so that is one useful way for that. Okay, yeah. sorry. I've been um, So, again, one thing that came up when we were looking earlier at sources, and I think that it's sort of an interesting idea from the Talmud. Um, I'm just going to share my screen for a moment so you can see this. 
This is from uh, from Yevamot. Um, right, so it says the sages taught in a bright so with regard to someone who came and said, I am a convert. One might have thought that we should accept them. Therefore, it says, if a convert sojourns with you in your land, you shall not oppress him. The emphasis is on on with you suggests that only someone who was already presumed by you, it says to be a valid convert, but I think either to be a valid convert or to be Jewish should be accepted as a, as a convert. And I think this might be some sort of like this idea that we very much play out practically of, you know, a person needs to sort of be integrated with into the community in order to be converted, right? Someone who's living far away from the Jewish community and doesn't really have any interaction with any Jewish community, even if they've accepted full Torah observance and full everything, halachic observance, and all of that stuff is is fine, but they're not part of the community. They're not familiar with the terminology. They're not, right, All they don't have any of those pieces to where if they went into a Jewish community, they wouldn't be able to pass, as it were, because they haven't been, like, no one knows them. They're not part of this, like, wouldn't be accepted as a convert, almost in any case that I'm aware of. Um, there's sort of that piece as well, which is, okay, there's the acceptance of the commandments, there's the, or at least the yoke of the commandments, there's Mila and Tefila, but there's also that that piece of, and this is where it becomes complicated, because we say that piece of fitting in, but then of course there's people who don't fit in because they don't, quote unquote, look the part, whether that's for like the racial reasons that um, we were talking about before, or, you know, other reasons that someone doesn't, quote unquote, look the part, and and it can be sort of unfairly exclusionary. But there is something about trying to become integrated into the community and sort of being seen as part of the community beforehand as, as sort of part of that conversion process. Padre. But I don't think this gear is considered to be like a convert, is it? The one that's Which being one? spoken of in, in um, Leviticus. Uh, it depends on how you read Leviticus, if it's a sojourner or a convert. But they typically understand, the rabbis read it as convert. They read it as, because what about, you know, like, Gerim Hayitim Be'eretz Mitzrayim? I mean, we were the, the shot reading of the verse is not convert, but the okay. way it's typically read by the rabbis is as convert. Which, by the way, has ramifications then when it says not about not oppressing the stranger. It's like, no, right. you can't. It's about not oppressing the convert. You can be mean to a stranger, but you can't be mean to a convert, right? So there's sort of limitations mm. in applicability of those texts um, that are sort of not ideal that come from it being limited in the rabbinic minds of convert. Well, it doesn't seem like Rabbi Hertz, at least, agrees with that. But uh, this, this Rabbi Hertz. But... That, that's the homage that we use. Again, that's the straightforward reading of the verse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. But in the Talmudic mind, it means God. Okay. Well, also the Talmudic, not necessarily mind, but moment, right? They want to read it that way because that's the way that they're putting together their their statement. So they're reading into it, not not an unfair way of reading it, but they're reading into it what they want to read into it to get the product that they want. Right, which is that you have to be nice to someone who converts, but you don't need to be nice to the other people who are just sort of living in the land around you. Only people who have decided that they want to tie their feet to the Jewish people. That's right. I mean, I'm not going to say that's right, but you said that correctly. Yeah. Um, okay. So 
I will share a little bit about the conservative movement. Um, so based on Amir's moment in that interview, if anybody were to say to a conservative, really Jew, but in his case, you know, leader of a community, whether rabbi or not, and they said, this person of any kind of culture, or any kind of faith wants to convert to Judaism, his answer would have been, great, I'll be happy to meet with them. Um, we, we take on the same things that Rabbi Parnik mentioned before. We do Mila or Hatafat Damrit. Thank you very much. Um, we also do take everyone to mikvah, obviously. The third piece of taking on the mitzvot, we would say we do. However, that definition is very different in the conservative movement and in the reform movement than to the orthodox movement. So when I teach my intro to Judaism class, I very often, there's a, in the, in the curriculum that we use, there's a chapter on denominations, which, I mean, just being in a class with Rabbi Parnik and my, and me, you know, you, you can see that there's confusion beyond belief in terms of denomin, what does it mean to be a part of this denomination versus this denomination? How do you understand things? The lines are, the lines are blurry at times. So to teach a class on denominations is, is difficult to do. And I often bring in someone from each of those denominations. So I brought in um, two LA rabbis for this LA based class. Um, one is Rabbanit Alyssa, who works at B'nai David Judea. And the other, uh, is Rabbi Alex Crest, who was working at UCLA Hillel. So we had a panel that talked about the different ways that the different movements engage with different pieces of Judaism. And one of the questions was conversion. And one of the things that Rabbanit Alyssa said was, we take a much longer time than the other movements do because we want to make sure that the people who are converting into our denomination are practicing a life within the, the, the context of the modern Orthodox movement, which means becoming fully Shomer Shabbat, which means becoming fully kosher, which means, uh, learning the laws of Nida, all of those different things that, that are seen as um, this idea of ol mitzvot, of taking on the yoke of the mitzvot in the modern Orthodox movement, they they want, as Rabbi Nathalissa said, they want completion in those areas. Whereas what I would say is, I want to see my conversion student on the journey to completion. I don't need someone to stand in front of me at a bait dean and say, I've kept kosher for the past six years and I'm ready to do this. And one of the things that Rabbanita Lissa and I discussed a lot in that panel is that, and she said this, I didn't, though I believe this also about my own movement, that when you expect that of people going into the modern Orthodox movement, what you're basically saying is you might be more observant than many of the people who go to our modern Orthodox shul. But they're going to our more modern Orthodox shul without any questions asked because they were born this way and they can just walk in and decide, well, I go to modern Orthodox shul, but I don't actually keep Shabbat. So we realize in taking students through these steps that we're asking something that we don't even ask of our own blood, right? We don't ask of our own born Jews that when they get to bar mitzvah, for example, we don't say, what are the mitzvot you know that you're going to be taking on fully? And and that, I think, is where the conservative movement breaks away from, from orthodoxy to say that we, we know that there are different levels of taking on mitzvot. 
And so we don't want someone to come to us and say, I've done all of this. I'm, I'm at the top of, of the, the keeping and the guarding, the shamor and the zahor of all of these different pieces, but rather I've tried keeping kosher. These are the steps I've taken so far. I've tried keeping Shabbat. These are the steps that I would like to see take me taking on in the future with my family. And that for us is a beautiful conversation that then leads to mikvah. So I would say that there are, there are many differences in terms of the actual process and the actual learning, but that is one very stark difference between the concerned movement and the orthodox movement in terms of when you are actually ready for conversion. Yeah, I would just add, um, I think in orthodoxy, there isn't necessarily an ex- there isn't an expectation that people are going to be perfect in their observance of everything because no one is perfect in their observance of everything or very, almost nobody. Um, but there sort of needs to be like a person needs to be in a place where they viably can be do like can do all of these things. So even if they're not necessarily a hundred percent going to do everything perfectly, it needs to be a, a, a viable possibility. And they're at a place where they have done that and they've tried that and they're trying, you know, there's sort of things are in place. Um, I think there's sort of more of a sense of like that word all or like burden um, on the rabbi as well of like, okay, if someone's, if I'm putting my name on someone, then anytime that they break these laws, that's like on me. Um, and so I sort of need to know that the payoff is going to be like, you know, the ultimately the scale is going to be in the favor of, of merit um, because it's sort of like sort of, I'm, I'm sort of, it's the same, similar, almost like when, uh, someone gives smicha, they give a rabbinic ordination. It's sort of like, I'm attaching my name to you. So if, if you don't follow through or, you, you know, then, then it, it sort of weighs on, you know, my ultimate scale as it were. Karen, and then we'll let your dad share. I run support groups of people converting to Judaism through the AJU, American Jewish University. And they love you. And I love you, and I love them, and I love Green World. I love everybody. Anyway, thank you for saying that. Yeah, of course. Um, what we talk about is not yet. So at the Beit Dean, if you, you know, do you keep kosher? Well, not yet, but I don't now have uh, meat sauce with uh, Parmesan. You know, there is a sense of a journey, and you're not there yet, but you're open to all. Just thought I put my two cents in. No, it's a beautiful, that's a beautiful way of framing what I was, what I was sharing. And I think that, that a lot of what you hear from conversion students is, well, this is how I keep kosher right now. What if they ask me X, Y, and Z? And I always say, you should be honest because it's better that you be honest than you say, well, today I didn't eat that. <laughs> right. So it's, it is. It's better for for the person, I think, right? I've, I've never been a smoker. I've never smoked a thing in my life. But but from what I understand of smoking is that it's hard to go cold turkey. But if you do something to allow you to wane yourself off of whatever kind of smoking you're doing, it's easier to then stop the habit. I think it's the same with acquiring habits, that if you decide I'm going to stop doing this completely and then say, I'm just going to be kosher tomorrow, well, that's going to be much harder than if you go through the journey of keeping kashrut and, or of keeping Shabbat and very slowly tack things on so that at some point you do, as as Karen just said, you're able to say, 
Well, not yet, but this is this is where I'm getting to. Just uh, before, Rebecca, we, wait, before, so I just want to make one one comment on Karen. Okay, I just wanted to make one uh, comment on Karen's point, which is actually sort of in line with, um, not exactly in line, but um, there's an idea in the Talmud. No, so there's an idea in the Talmud that you can't convert someone who says, "I'm willing to accept everything chutz midavarecha," right? I'm willing to accept everything other than one thing. Right, that that person you can't convert. Um, but the idea of the chutz midavar echad is if someone says, I accept the legitimacy of 612 meets vote, one of them I am absolutely not going to do, then you can't convert that person. Um, I think Karen's point about the not yet is sort of right that point of I'm, I'm open to all of it. I might not be there yet with all of them, but I'm open to all of them. Whereas the chutzmi davar echad is a person who says, I'm, to- I'm there for 612, but one I am absolutely not going to do. Like that's, that's a person you can't convert because there's not an openness to that one mitzvah. So I think that's an important point that you raised. Okay. Rebecca and Leonard. Does the um, Beitin turn the person down uh, twice and do they give a reason and tell them to work on something? So when they come back, perhaps their enhanced uh, observance? So the way that it works in in our movement, though I kind of assume it's the same in the other movements, is that the person looking to convert chooses a rabbi. In our case, they actually have to go through a class first, and then and then they start speaking to a rabbi um, as their sponsoring rabbi. And then I spend anywhere from six months to a year to maybe even more with that person, learning just the two of us one on one. I've never said to a person, come back. I have said, this is going to take more time than you think. Um, so it's kind of like the modern day version of go away, come back, go away, come back. But I don't know of anybody who does the three times thing any longer. I think there are versions of it in modern day where a person might think, oh, we're going to come to you. You're the rabbi. You're going to hear that I want to be Jewish. You're going to sign this paper. And then I'm going to be ready to go to the mikvah. I've never done that. Um, and if someone asks me to do that, I say you should find somebody else. Because I, I, as Rai Pernick said, you're, you are going to carry with you my name on a certificate that, that I thought that you were ready to be Jewish. And I want to make sure that, that I have that connection with you in a very legitimate way. So that, no, and I think there are ways to make it still valid in the world that it's not just a shoe-in experience that you still have to prove that this is something you really want and that you're going after. Hey, Yuri. Um, I just want to say, like, I feel like um, it's really hard, like, as a convert, like, when you're coming into this, like, they tell you about all these different streams, but sometimes you don't really fit into one particular stream. Yeah. And, you know, and I feel like because of your gender or, or just whatever, you may have to settle for a less observant stream, even though you're observant, more observant, because they, you know, because you want that equal role, but then you also struggle with acceptance because now this whole other part, the part that you most identify with doesn't accept you at all. And they never will because you were just born the wrong gender. And, you know, and what, for me, when I converted into the conservative movement, I, um, I was, I was very pregnant (laughs) with my second child. And when my baby was like 10 months old, we went to, we had to go to Atlanta, I live in New Orleans and I remember that feeling of like, oh, you know, this is finally it. Like my, I'm going to be accepted into this community. But having to leave New Orleans to go to the mikvah in Atlanta was 
the very opposite feeling of acceptance. I was I was very aware of how different like um I still was to like mm. like something I felt so connected to. And I feel like as a convert, like you have like this asterisk. Like, mm. yeah, sure, like inside you feel like one hundred percent Jewish, but to the outside world you're just this asterisk Jew, like like, mm. oh yeah, okay, like you you've converted but you're not really us. And I feel like you know, there's so many more steps that you have to take if you're a parent to make sure that your child doesn't face these struggles. And it's not, it's not your soul. It's not like how you feel. It's not like how you're practicing. It's just, you're doing it for them, not for yourself. It gets to that point. And I feel like it's just so hard, you know, because I mean, what, what generation in my children's like life will they just like not like be looked at as that? As a convert, it's just it's kind of emotion, like an emotional thing to talk about. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I can't speak to the New Orleans piece at all. Um, but I think first of all, you just said many things, many that were beautiful and many that were also heartbreaking. Um, and I think that that one of the one of the things that we try to do, and it sounds like we need to get better at it. Uh, but one of the things that we try to do is make sure that anybody who chooses to be part of Judaism recognizes that you just weren't part of Judaism to begin with, but now you've found where you're supposed to be and that you shouldn't feel like you have an asterisk and you should never feel like there's some kind of otherness. Um, and so I'm sorry that you, that you felt that way or you feel that way. And the piece about the children, I think that's, that's really important that I I was just actually speaking to a conversion student about this earlier today is that there are many ways in which how you convert with whom you convert um, where you convert can be a hindrance to, to your children based on the path that they choose. And I think that it's also very important for the person converting. And it sounds like you did this very intentionally to choose where is most comfortable for them to also be Jewish. So I obviously, um, I, I can't speak to your community nor to the, to the process of it, but I, I would hope that, that you can also recognize that part of that conversion piece, even though there are children in the picture, that that conversion piece is, is so much also about you finding your place. And the only other thing that I wanted to add to that is that even being born Jewish, I think we often don't know what denomination we fit into, right? I have this conversation with Rabbi Pernick all the time. There are many aspects of different denominations that exist in this world that I wish I could be, that I could take parts of and say, well, I like that piece and I like this piece but I couldn't necessarily be a female rabbi in all of those different locations. So uh, yeah, I, I have no like bow to put on any of those comments, but, but those are my comments. Yeah. I mean, I'll just add, you know, cause I think this is a question whenever I talk to people looking to convert, it's sort of like that, that desire to have it sort of things be universally recognized is like, so not impossible, but you know, so, almost impossible to sort of achieve because, okay, so you can convert conservative, but then you wouldn't count an Indian in Orthodox synagogue. And you can convert Orthodox, but if you wanted, or your kids wanted to move to Israel, there's no guarantee that Rabbanut would accept them as Jewish, you know? Like, so there's, um, 
And by the way, you probably would count an Minion in an Orthodox Minion because no one's asking you at the door, did you convert or are you born Jewish? So, right. right. So there's, I mean, so there's again, like pieces. a lot of those pieces I think are, are, are given to conversion students by the rabbis to let them know kind of all the things that possibly if this or that, those stars align could potentially be difficult. But ultimately, I don't, I don't think that if someone walked into a shul just as a person that they would be asked, were you born Jewish or were you, did you convert? Right. Right. No, that's true. But I think other pieces about, you know, gender and mitzvot and those kinds of things are yeah. just like, right. Are the things that you talk about all the time of like. Totally. You know, yeah. Yeah. They're again, I think they're very difficult even for someone who grew up in a Jewish home. I think the gender piece is always going to be difficult. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to religion and where it comes to you fitting in and wanting to make sure that you can, um, be, be the person that you want to be, but also in the denomination of Judaism that you feel fits, fits you. That's really hard. Uh, Karen and then Rabbi Parnick can give us the reform digest. I just wanted to add that, and I didn't hear really where you were talking about, and it may not matter, but so much of it has to do <clears throat> with the nature of the congregation that you're trying to join. I was born Jewish and that was it. I feel as though I'm a convert. I'm an adult learner, an adult practicer, jumped right in, volunteered, etc. And I don't, I, I, we, it really has to do with the warmth of the place and not, no one is allowed to ask you, I thought, whether you're a convert or not. I thought that's like, whoa, a big non-mitzvah thing to do. And so it really depends on that, I think. Uh, And of course, in LA, you have tons of uh, places. A very dear friend's son happened to be wherever he was working for Rosh Hashanah, goes to a synagogue, and not one person said hello. Mm. When people come to my synagogue, I t- if, if from the UJ, I say, tell them you want to see Karen, and, you know, and I'll tell them that I'm here and where to come. And then I introduce you to everybody in the world, and you want me to stop talking to you. Okay, so it depends. And I'm sorry you have a problem with any of it. Amen. Well, actually, um, all of the rabbis here in New Orleans are fantastic, and the community, too. It's just you can absolutely tell the difference, like, between, you know, like, if you if you don't, um, you know, like, uh, convert through the Orthodox movement, like, you definitely, like, are just not probably going to be accepted by, like, anyone more observant than the conservative movement. I would not be accepted as a, an, even when I go to the grocery store, I'm worried that I'm not wearing a skirt. But I see lots of other people wearing pants, women. So that's that's the deal with that. Okay, never mind. Would you like to go, Rabbi Dan Pernick? So I, I just also want to add that I was very moved by what Yuri had to say. And, and I would just want to add that a lot of times Jews are the worst uh, teachers of Judaism because um, – you know, people, and, and we have those people in the reform movement and they're in the conservative and the orthodox and renewal and whatever you have. Some people feel that if you don't grow up eating gefilte fish and matzo ball soup, 
that, you know, how could you possibly be a Jew? And I, I think you need to be secure in your own identity, you know, with God, with Torah, with the Jewish people, and to understand that along the way, you're just going to find people, you know, who think they know, but they really don't. And you just need to know that, you know, you are secure and, and you are, you know, kosher in your own right. Um, you know, in terms of that, just kind of going back to what we were talking about, uh, you know, with conversion, it reminded me a lot of the Hanukkah menorah and the debate between Shammai and Hillel. You know, Shammai said, you start with the, all the candles lit. And Hillel said, in matters of holiness, you always want to be increasing. And I think they said pretty much the same thing with regard to conversion. Shammai said, you know, basically you have to be living the, you know, by Kabbalat Olham um, Mitzvot. You have to be living with the yoke of the Mitzvot. And Hillel basically said, you know, you teach them the basics and they're going to grow into it. And every rabbi is going to have a different perspective in terms of how to do it. And that's why some of us might have issues with the way other rabbis do it. Um, there are Orthodox rabbis who do and, you know, this has been very well publicized, very quickie conversions for large sums of money. And there are, you know, reform and conservative rabbis, as well as Orthodox, who will take years before converting somebody. Um, well, I guess what I can tell you, the reform movement does not have standards like you must do this and you must do that. But I can tell you that the, I would think that the large majority of reform rabbis requires or at least very strongly encourages mikvah. It will vary by the part of the country one is in. Um, in terms of hatafat dam, the symbolic circumcision, that's, I think, I, I certainly recommend it. Um, I have been present for three adult circumcisions. Uh, those were over 35 years ago. and They brought a stretcher for me. Um, in the hospital where they were doing it. It was uh, quite an experience. Um, but there is something, you know, this is one of the two mitzvot, you know, which are described as a, you know, a symbol of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. So, you know, it, it is a really big deal. Um, we require, obviously, a serious period of Torah study uh, and learning with the rabbi. Just like Rabbi Schott said, we have an introduction to Judaism course. It's usually 15 or 16 weeks. The, the movement teaches it. I've taught it many, many times. And then there are the individual meetings with the rabbi. But, you know, it's kind of like kashrut supervision. I used to think before I had two Orthodox kids that, you know, kosher was kosher. You know, you have kosher cheese, it's kosher cheese. And all of a sudden I learned that, well, you know, Sarah's not going to eat this kosher cheese. It's like, well, it's tablet K. I mean, what's wrong with it? It's, it's, you know, it's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And Hebrew National. And all. So, and it's really very similar when it comes to conversion. Some people are going to say, well, who converted you? And, you know, some, some people are going to look for the defects and some people are going to look for the beauty. So, um, you know, there's diversity in the reform movement in terms of that. But I think as a movement, we've certainly moved far more to the traditional side. But I'm guessing, and Rabbi Schatz is obviously going to know, and actually maybe Josh does as well, the, the Northeast is a very, very traditional part of the country, I think, for all three movements. In terms of the Reform movement, I mean, almost every Reform temple is two days of Rosh Hashanah. 
their yarmulkes and talitot and all the reformed temples. I mean, not everybody wears them, but they're certainly there. We do a lot of very traditional things, but I don't know, in the South and maybe in the West, what I am told is that it's much less traditional from a ritual perspective. Yeah. So, I think um, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to say one, one last thing, and then, um, and that was when I was in junior high school a few years ago. And we had to read the book, Yes, I Can, which anybody know what I see Robert nodding his head. It's the autobiography of Sammy Davis Jr. And he literally went to the rabbi who turned him, that kept turning him down. And he thought it was a racial thing, you know, and then he, he finally learned, you know, what, what the story was. But I agree. We, we take people in and I will usually let them know about that history. Um, you know, and there certainly have been issues with Jew. We call them Jews by choice. And that relates to what Karen said in the sense that we're all Jews by choice. You know, I mean, even if you're a Jew by birth, there are plenty of Jews by birth who that's their only connection. So um, I was just going to use the Jews by choice line. My dad says that all the time because he he believes that every Jew is, you know, that we should be seen similar to what I said before about like keeping our conversion students to a certain standard. He says, we're all Jews by choice. You wake up every morning and you decide, are you a Jew today? Mm -hmm. Are you not a Jew today? Um, And that's based in action and that's based in ritual and that's based in custom. And yeah, I agree. We call, we call our conversion students Jews by choice, but I think that that's exactly right. That we are actually all Jews by choice and we just have to figure out what it means, wh- where we are in that journey versus where someone who's just beginning that journey, uh, is going to end up. Could I just ask one question though? And it's of either of the other rabbis. So there is, of course, the tradition that you're not supposed to remind a, a, a Jew by choice of their previous non-Jewish background, right? Mm-hmm. But why on the ketubah, the traditional ketubah, does it say giurta for, you know, a Jew by choice who is getting married? Because to me, that's like a, you know, <laughs> I've never understood. A, that. a big neon sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can take that. There's a different, there's different, uh, the amounts of money that are promised are different for divorcees, right? Widows and converts. And so now what, um, yeah, I mean, this, these kinds of questions come up all the time. And like what my Rosh Hashiva Rav Linzer would say is sometimes what matters is what's written and not what's said. And so sometimes like they'll say, you know, if a, right, typically the word is betulta for a, you know, previously unmarried Jewish woman. Um, and so, and if it doesn't say Betulta, everyone notices and it's like, oh. Um, and sometimes other people don't know that background. And so sometimes they'll, uh, he'll say, whatever, say Betulta under the ketubah, but just have it written something else and just know when you're reading that you're, it's like a kriyuktiv, you know, like, <laughs> like where kriyuktiv is like a thing in the Torah where it's written one way, but you say something else. Um, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, it doesn't matter what you say if you're reading it under the ketubah. So you're right. It's still, it should be written correctly in terms of what's a person's status. Um, but if you're reading the ketubah aloud, you can read whatever you want. But the, but the answer to the question, which is why, (laughs) is Mm -hmm. because of the amounts, amount, which, which you originally said. 
Yeah. I, there is a ketubah that, um, my teacher, Rabbi Dr. Aryeh Cohen wrote based on the halachic sources for ketubah as well as the Talmudic discussion around ketubah. Did I send this to you? Is this the one you sent me a few years, years ago? No, not you, not you. I was oh, asking your dad. Oh, I don't you, think so. you don't, you don't get to discuss this ketubah right now. Um, um, it, I had a lot and, to say about it when so, I first read it, though. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this, it's a beautifully written egalitarian ketubah. And one of the things that it doesn't have in it is status. So for mm. anybody who's looking at this ketubah for the first time, you'll notice that there isn't any space for batulta or for giorta or panyata is one of the other ones that you can use in the conservative movement. Mm. Um, and... When I, I knew someone who was filling it out for the first time for actually her, her own wedding. And she said, I don't see where I put Batulta. And she called, uh, she was someone who I went to school with. And so she called our teacher and said, where do I put it? And he said, did I ask you if you were a virgin? And she said, well, no, but don't I have to put that in there? Because do- doesn't it matter in terms of like the, the actual Ketubah price? And he said, I did, did I ask? I, I've, I've never asked you before what your sexual relationship status is. So I think that one of the, one of the pieces that he was getting at in that kind of, you know, Rabbi Cohen way of his was that he, it doesn't matter. Your status does not matter except for the monetary piece. So if the monetary piece isn't in the ketubah, which it is obviously in a traditional ketubah, it doesn't matter. And, and your status is then just, you as a human with your name. So I, I'm also not answering the question of why, why is the money, but I just wanted to add my anger around having any of those names, uh, or status put in before, before your name. So I think it's, it's a way of, of doing exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to do, which is remind someone of their status of being a convert in that particular case. Uh, Norm and Rachel. Um, I had a question because of the concept of all of us being a Jew by choice, does that mean that I can wake up one after one morning and decide today I'm not going to be Jewish, go out and have scallops for lunch, and then the following day go back? I mean, there are lots of people who don't keep kosher in Judaism. So I, yes, I mean, I, I think that what you're getting at is exactly what religion is really all about it's it's ascribing yourself to a way of life and to a type of spirituality and a and a canon and if you wake up one day and you decide to eat scallops for lunch i don't think that makes you not jewish i think that just you're making a decision whether or not you are going to keep kashrut but as we all know kashrut isn't the only thing that defines you as a jew so you know, when I talk to B'nai Mitzvah students, I say to them, what makes you a bar bat mitzvah? And they always say, if I read my mouth here. No, that's not what makes you a bar bat mitzvah. What makes you a bar bat mitzvah is on the day of your 12th or your 13th birthday that you don't wake up and go decide, decide that you're going to go worship in a mosque or worship in a church, right? That you continue to practice your Jewish life in your Jewish home. We just make a celebration out of it. So I think the idea of being a Jew by choice is that you continue to act Jewishly, whatever that means for you. And that could mean eating scallops for lunch, right? It doesn't mean that you can't be Jewish because you don't keep kosher. Um, but being able to say, this is my Jewish identity and this is my Jewish existence without choosing to get rid of that. 
Ryan Pernick would have a different answer, but I stole the question. <laughs> I have a lot of different answers, but <laughs> <laughs> well, different. That's, you know. <laughs> a lot of different answers. The name of our next series. Um, any other thoughts, questions around conversion or anything? Yeah, Michael. I have a question. We talked a little bit about this at the very beginning when you're done shaking your head. <laughs> I was shaking my head. There's a running commentary that Rabbi Pernick has going in the chat. I, 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 assume, so so. I, assume, I assume so, Rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> I, Basically, I whenever I disagree rather than interrupting, I just, you know, note my... Type it to me instead. Yeah. I should... I should after all this time, I should know better. It's like yeah. middle school note, um, <laughs> whatever. I've seen you two interact long enough. I should know. Yeah. Uh, in any event, when we were studying on the uh, New Orleans lesson beforehand, yeah, we talked about in the ta- in the in the Mishnah. There's language to the effect that uh, when a convert comes, you explain you should be aware of all the problems that the Jews face, etc. And I'd like, and I want to bring that into a contemporary context. When all of you do a conversion, whether it's Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, at some point fairly on, do you have the students read a book or two on contemporary anti-Semitism so they realize what they're getting into? I don't on contemporary anti-Semitism. I feel like they are getting enough, well, I don't, depending on where you're living, I guess maybe not, but you know, the streets of LA, you're getting that right now. Um, so I feel like they're getting enough of that from the news in terms of the anti-Semitic piece. I do have them read different books on Israel from different angles on the state of Israel. Um, I ask them to listen to Israeli news or maybe read Israeli news and watch Israeli TV. I do ask them to do some of their own learning around the Holocaust, not just World War II. So I can only speak for myself, but yeah, a big part of not scaring them off by any means, but saying, I say the same thing to, to couples when they're getting married, right? You, you're coming into a family and now you own the other person's story as much as you own your own identity. So when your kids come to you and they say, can you tell me about grandma and grandpa? If that's, you know, your spouse's parents that you as the other person can still share that story because you own that family's history too now. So that, I think it's the same for, for conversion students that you have to be able to, when you enter into this religion, that you need to know that you might be called upon to fight for, speak up for, comment on aspects that are, are the not so beautiful parts that are the more challenging parts. Either Parnick have something to share? Well, I, w- I would just add that I don't necessarily have them read a book, but we definitely talk about it. Yeah. Rebecca and Leonard, I guess Josh. Oh, um, I was going to mention when we were at a synagogue in Manila, Philippines, in the Philippines, um, and there seemed to be, um, so we went for Shabbat, and in terms of number of men, I was upstairs, Leonard was downstairs, it seemed like there was maybe barely a minion of men. And um, Leonard, uh, in talking with the rabbi, he made some sort of comment, and the rabbi said, oh, not everybody's had their bar mitzvah, which was his euphemism for saying that some of them are studying to be converted yeah. Not all of them had yet. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like mixed marriages. And mm-hmm. um, 
So I wondered whether uh, that was something that uh, when somebody converts, are they um, also at the same time shortly thereafter encouraged a man or a woman if they're over age 13 to have an aliyah to the Torah and be considered a bar bat mitzvah? Is that kind of coincident with the conversion? Right, Pranik, would you like to say, I'm happy to answer this, but do you want to? You go first and I'll comment after. <laughs> I just feel like I'm taking up a lot of space. Um, yeah, so we we will say to a person, if they're comfortable coming up for an aliyah, definitely to take one, we'll give them a Misha Berach. We will not necessarily use the language of bar bat mitzvah, but definitely allow them to feel like they're coming up to the Torah for that moment. I'm going to answer something. You didn't say this, but this is uh, the direction I thought you were going in, which is what do you do when a kid comes to you from a family that hasn't necessarily grown up in a community uh, for a bar or bat mitzvah and you don't know their conversion status? Maybe they were adopted or maybe you don't know the conversion status of the parents and you don't really want to ask. So one of the communities here in L.A., ECAR, does a really beautiful thing where part of their seventh grade religious school, they actually maybe it's sixth grade, they actually all take all of the kids a kid who could have been raised in an Orthodox environment and like clearly is Jewish, that kid, as well as the other kid who you might be questioning, every single child goes to the mikvah as part of the ritual before their bar bat mitzvah um, as a way of just not even having to have the conversation, but being able to say anyone who is approaching the Torah in our community, we, the Ikar rabbis, can say that that we have seen them that they have come out and into this world as Jews ready for bar bat mitzvah. So I just wanted to add that. That wasn't your question, but I hope I, I answered your question before. So um, we were listening to the podcast. We weren't able to attend the, the last session, but uh, we listened to the podcast uh, just before this thing started here. And I was wondering if we ever got the answer to what are the Arbor Barchot. Oh, Norm's not here anymore, but yeah, we'll ask him. That's a great question. We did. Oh, but, but maybe, Dan, do you know the, um, in the reform world, I guess at times there have been only four of the seven of the Sheva Brachot recited based on, Norm seemed to think it was based on Israel connection. Do you know anything about that? I know there is a shorter version. Okay. But I don't think it was four, but there, I, I know that there, there is a shorter version. I don't use it, but there is a shorter version. Yeah. I think it eliminates the sostasis and samach to samach. Yeah. Um, when I looked in the rabbi's manual last week, those were the ones that I assumed were eliminated, but I, I couldn't take out three. I can only take out two. So I didn't know yeah. what the other one was. Um, I would just say, I mean, the, I think it seems so the like the bar mitzvah thing to that question. I don't I'm not aware of any Orthodox synagogue that does that. Um, but it seems like a thing that uh you know reform and conservative synagogues will offer um if you know someone has gone through the conversion process and they want to sort of you know demonstrate I mean getting called up for an aliyah certainly is a big thing, but then some people want sort of a ceremony of uh you know afterwards of sort of demonstrating that. So I've never seen that in an Orthodox context, but I definitely have, um, I mean, people who are here who are learning with, you know, different rabbis in the community for conversion. That's a thing that's been offered. Um, I know so definitely is popular. Wearing a talis for the first time. I know a lot of my male conversion students love the first Shabbat that they're able to come and wear a talit and feel like it's now their garment as opposed to something that they watch their other people wear. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Not so much Tillin, which I can understand, but Talit is an, is an easy one to put on. Uh, Denise. So, um, just kind of bringing it back to the show a little bit. Yeah. When Amir was in the interview and yeah. they told him, you know, there's a bunch of Valenzuelan Indians who want to convert. And he goes, Indianim? Mm-hmm. But he didn't actually answer. Correct. And like, I kind of felt like he was sort of trying to buy some time mm. and that maybe he wasn't going to take such a hard line. And mm. and it was kind of a nice surprise that he had that level of flexibility, that he didn't just run screaming. <laughs> oh, it was interesting. I think it was sort of the opposite. It was like, to me, it was almost like he was shot, like Indians who want to become Jewish. Like, because, you know, in Israel particularly, there is that racial dimension that like, you just sort of don't, you know, you see Thai workers and Pakistanis and whatever, and they're sort of like, they're not Jews. They're like notably not Jews in Israeli society. So this idea of Indians uh-huh. who want to be Jews is like, Indians? They want to be Jewish? Like, what? you know, like it's sort of, that's how I read it. Cause I think that's. Like, yeah, you're I mean, really right. I didn't, I didn't know that about Israeli society. So. I mean, I think it's similar in America that to go back to, I think it was Rachel who brought up, you know, um, davening in Africa and being in a room where she was seeing the same things, but in a room of people that were very different color than, than the room that she's used to at Temple Beth Am, um, predominantly that I think that there's something, um, there is something very, uh, unfortunate about if someone comes to you, especially from a different race, and comes to you and says, I want to convert to Judaism, that at least I'll only speak for myself, though I think that other rabbis have felt this way too. You must be doing it for a spouse or for someone you're dating, or why are you coming to this, to this religion from a different um, race or ethnicity? And I think it's unfair, right? I think that, that that's an unfair um, stereotype because obviously someone of of any ethnicity could just choose a different religion and feel very very at home in Judaism but I think what you're pointing out and what you and Rai Pernick are are um, thinking about here together in kind of opposite ways is it's possible that he just didn't even think that someone from a different ethnicity would be interested if it was just to convert as opposed to part of like a familial or tribal um, experience. So um, looking at my old rabbi's manual, there were four versions of a marriage ceremony. Well, three. This is the rabbi's manual. That's like more scotch tape than, than book. (laughs) But uh, the, the fourth one is, I mean, I could read them to you, but it's a, it's a combination. Okay. So it is four, but it's kind of an abridged version of the seven. Interesting. So that's, I, I've never used that, but I, it, it is in there. Very interesting. Okay, well, it is 7.30, which is longer than we typically go, but this is a really lovely conversation. Um, and I'm sure we'll continue to be many other individual conversations in our in our individual communities. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.